my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Hello and welcome to another great episode of our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. Today I am joined by Michael J. Bobbitt, Executive Director of Mass Cultural Council, with the goal of elevating the cultural life of Massachusetts, the council partners with communities to, quote, expand access, improve education, promote diversity, and encourage excellence in the arts, humanities, and science, end quote. As the highest ranking cultural official in Massachusetts, Michael's also a theater director, choreographer, and playwright, directing or choreographing productions at the Shakespeare Theater, Strathmore, the Kennedy Center, Helen Hayes Awards, Washington National Opera, and other venues. National and international credits include the New York Musical Theater Festival, the Jefferson Performing Arts Center, and the 1996 Olympics. However, I am going to go out on a limb and say that Michael's most important role is that of a father, a commitment that he shares with his husband. With such an impressive resume, I'm excited and maybe a little bit nervous to learn more about Michael J. Bobbitt and his journey as a Black gay professional. Hi, Michael, and welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Don't be nervous. That resume just makes me tired. <laughs> Nothing to be nervous about. Oh, okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well. Today's been a busy day, but I'm doing very, very well. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, yeah, good. Thank you for uh, joining me. I was really excited when you accepted, especially in the position that you're in working with the Mass Cultural Council. Yeah, you're at the beginning of the work week and you're already busy. So that sounds like a productive week. Yeah, most weeks are pretty packed to pack. It's a great job and I get to sort of influence and have some thoughts and influence on the cultural sector of Massachusetts. It's humbling and exciting, and I hope people see the work that we're trying to do. So you're based in Boston, but you handle all of the cultural affairs in Massachusetts. I wouldn't say I handle them. It's an independent agency of the state. So our main office is located in Boston. And basically, we provide support, mostly via grants to arts and culture across the whole state, arts, culture, humanities, and the interpretive sciences. And we do that to individual artists, but also organizations and some municipalities all over the state. So sometimes they make me go to Martha's Vineyard, or they make me go to Nantucket, or the Berkshires, or the Cape. The perks of my job are being able to sort of travel around and see the beautiful places and great art that we have in Massachusetts. Mm, okay. Humanities and the last one, interpretive sciences, what is that? I think that's a term of art, interpretive sciences, that really sort of uh, means the sort of aquariums and the zoos and the arboretums that are science-based, but still for the public consumption, unlike chemistry, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's artistic and cultural, but it's really on the science side. And then the humanities are literary arts, our history, parts of arts and culture that really is tied to books and poems and writing and history and stuff like that. 
play reframes with the sciences. You know, I'd go to aquarium or something like that, and I never thought of what goes behind it. I don't know if that's a technical term. I think it's something that we have used to define the kind of support we offer. Again, it's mostly for the public consumption and whether or not there's an artistic part of it that's up to the organization. You know, I can certainly make an argument for why certain things like arboretums and the design of arboretums is art, the way aquariums are put together, their reinterpretation of the climate that the fish live in. Similarly, zoos, when you go to the Serengeti exhibit, that's all designed for public consumption. It's an interesting world to be in because most of my background is really in arts and culture and very little of it is in that area. So I'm learning with this job to enjoy all of that even more. Being a leader, but also a student. Yeah, I learn it every day from my staff, from the sector, all my site visits. And I'm new to the job. I've been here for a year and a half. So every turn I take into a new community and see what they're doing, I'm, I'm pretty impressed. In preparing for talking to you today, I have a confession to make. I don't know how to spell Massachusetts from memory. <laughs> I blame it on being from Arizona, which is pretty easy to sound out. <laughs> it is a Native American term. In fact, it comes from the Massachusetts people. Well, I gave myself a homework assignment. I'll try to memorize it by the end of this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So with it being Pride Month, are there any events that are tied to your organization? Yeah, so one of the programs that we fund are festivals all over the Commonwealth. We're a Commonwealth, but not a state. So there are lots of funding going out to festivals that have an artistic aspect to it. And I have been personally going to as many things as I can go to because I still say I'm new to the Commonwealth, to Massachusetts, even though I've been here almost three years. A year of that was stolen with COVID, so I still feel fairly new. So I'm still on the, on the hunt for new friends and new social groups. So I've been going to a few events. I went to a pop-up Pride event that was in the Boston Common, and then there was the Back Bay Block Party. I'm still recovering from all of that. I like that name. Yeah, Back Bay. Back Bay is an area in Boston. I see. So Commonwealth, I did see that on the website, but I wasn't exactly sure what that meant. It just means that the tax dollars go back into the state for the most part. It's a, a legislative term of art, but we function many ways like a state. So you mentioned the pandemic. How was it for the organization at the height of it? I came into the organization midway through the pandemic. I started in February of 21, but I was running a theater company when the pandemic first hit. So I remember the moments of having to walk in the room and fire a bunch of artists not knowing what was going to happen, how long it was going to last, thinking it was only going to last for a few weeks, trying to figure out how to program next year. It just was a lot of scariness, as everyone can imagine. Also, those bleak moments of sitting at home and like the world was shut down. That whole thing felt like a weird dystopia. But the agency was really dealing with a lot of organizations both individuals and organizations struggling with incomes. We had a couple of surveys that went out during the pandemic showing that there were $716 million in losses from organizations and 30-something million dollars from individuals. That money is pretty much gone. While Mass Cultural Council can support some of that recovery, we can't certainly fix all of those problems. And I think, you know, the public consumption of art happens a lot of times indoors. 
those people that are still vulnerable to COVID. So those organizations that have indoor presentations, it's going to be hard. I know the organizations that have done outdoor programming have actually seen somewhat of a rise because people feel more comfortable being outdoors. But I think we'll still be recovering from this for the next few years. So what's the percentage now of performances that you're able to do in person or live? It seems like for the most part, everyone is sort of back up and running, though with lower capacity, mostly from attendance vulnerability, being shy about coming back. But every time I go see an indoor show, especially a play or dance concert, the masks are required. People are still requiring vaccines. And I felt fairly safe. Depending on the show, audiences have been full or half capacity. I think we'll be still recovering from that for the next few years. Yeah, those things that I know I took for granted. And then this pandemic hit and it's like, oh, wow, I did a lot more than I realized as far as going to see shows and things like that. I think in my job and I think in my life working in the arts, there was always a thought that the art was leisure and not an essential health and human service. There's so many statistics out there about how people that are involved in the arts or exposed to the arts or participate in the arts do better as members of their society, better health, better mental health, students do better in school. There's just hundreds and hundreds of reports about that. When that all went away, it made us realize how much art and culture is inherent to our lives. And getting through quarantine was enhanced because of art and culture. We had podcasts, we had books, we had Netflix, we had all kinds of art and culture, digital art, everyone started producing their shows online. So if we didn't have that, I think life would have been even harder during quarantine. I mean, of course, we wish this didn't happen, but as you mentioned, what came out of it, that's been a positive. Yeah, I think the, the visibility of the arts and culture sector and how integrated it is into our lives. I know that restaurants and hotels realize that they benefit greatly when there are shows. I knew they knew this, but they had to sort of advocate for arts and culture to reopen quickly. And then I think we also learned that there are some business practices in the cultural sector, especially the nonprofit world, that could use some revisions, tweaking, redesign. And also, I think organizations that were predominantly white realized that when you market and you produce for one demographic, and they were also white and older, when you market and produce for one demographic, you're going to be vulnerable to things like pandemics. And so how do you sort of redesign your programs with people of color so that your organizations can be for people of color? Mm. So we saw a lot more diversity come out, and certainly George Floyd's sad sacrifice helped the whole world realize that we need to diversify and be more equitable and anti-racist. So those learning experiences are still filtering in the revisions that organizations are going through. And all aren't succeeding. And some people are kicking and screaming at making changes. But if you're not making those changes, if you're not becoming diverse, if you're not rethinking your financial practices and relooking at how you market and who you're engaging, I think you're going to be in trouble in the next five to 10 years. Touching on diversity, um, is this the first time in your position as executive director that there's been a Black and or LGBTQ plus person in that position? I definitely know that I'm the first person of color. I haven't actually asked if I'm the first LGBTQ plus person. Organizations have been around for about 40 years and all white-led. 
We had mentioned briefly before the recording, because I'm in Maryland at the moment, that you're not from Massachusetts. Where are you from? Born and raised in Lower Northwest DC, product of DC Public Schools. Moved to Maryland when my son that you mentioned turned a little bit before school age, moved out there for the school. So what was life like for you growing up in this part of the country in DC? You know, we were a poor family, not desolate, but poor. And so we had to make things work. Uh, I lived in a house with my mother and grandmother and step-grandfather for most of my growing up ages. There were five boys and my cousin lived with us. We were all somewhat involved in the arts, but I was the one who found some sort of solace and comfort and joy from it more than my brothers did. They were really more athletes. It was interesting growing up in an all-Black neighborhood and going to D.C. public schools. I don't remember it being as hard as it probably was because I think you just get used to the environment you're in and you don't realize what you might be missing until you're exposed to other things. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest part for me was when I went to high school, I got recruited by and went to an all-boy Jesuit high school, which was predominantly white. And there's where my world was like, it was shook because I now was exposed to new cultures and, you know, there was lots of wealthy people in my school. And so that shift was hard. I remember being mad at my family for being poor and black and not understanding that had nothing to do with them. It was really more about the oppression that black people live under. And it took me a while to come back to that. Until I became an adult, I realized it wasn't their fault. My family did their best. But I found myself, like I said, in music and dance and theater. And um, those are always my favorite classes to take. And somewhat that pulled over into the humanities, like history and English. It really was all the creative stuff, all the things where I can imagine a world differently and then bring that world to life with creativity. So were you initially focused on being like in the forefront as far as an artist or entertainer? I think artists tend to have imposter syndrome and insecurities. And I still think I, I live with that, not only in my life as an artist, but also in my life as an administrator and now as a bureaucrat. But I'm blessed with the creative mind. And so challenges I tend to uh, tackle creatively. And I enjoyed being an artist. But I think what I enjoyed about it was process. You know, when you study dance, it really is one plus one equals two, that if you master this one small step, that's how you're going to get to the next step and the next step. So like in ballet, if you master petit tendu, which is pointing your feet at the bar, then your batma, your kicks will be better. And then your leaps will be better. It's all there. That process was great. And then through theater, the creativity of being able to bring a character to life or to look at stuff on a page and then all of a sudden create this world taught me about how to expand my mind to the creative process. All of that just sort of fed my soul. But I, I realized probably about 15 years ago that I liked being in the room as an artist when I can really just focus in and just do the art. Mm -hmm. But more of where I thought my worth and value to the world was being outside the room, making the room available for artists to be artists. So producing theater and now running the state arts agency where I can support artists with funds and advice 
or services is fulfilling. I do a lot of public facing stuff, but I don't need to be in the front making the art, though I still do quite a bit of playwriting. Yeah, I thought of science from what we were talking about earlier. Like it is entertainment, but there's a process, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's much more involved than I think the general public realizes. I think about plays and movies especially, but the idea that one person can sit down and open up a Word document and imagine something. And then, you know, a little while later, this whole thing, this whole thing that they imagine in their head is now on stage or in a movie. That's pretty remarkable. That is also why I think that the cultural sector, the creative sector needs to be supported because if we want to solve the world's problems, we need creative thinkers. We need people that can see the future or see the world differently. Mm. And then we need people to help them figure out that the world they see in their head can actually come to life. And that's where the process comes in. That's the biggest, the most important thing about supporting the cultural sector because if we want our communities our world, our state, our country to be competitive, to continue advancing and progressing, that is where we need to invest. I uh, was in Europe for two years, and I'm not a professional like you in this arena, but I believe that in your world, you're the historians too, because we go to the museums, we go and see this art and even, you know, performances, dance and things. And that's part of the history of a country, a city or whatever. You know, interesting, because in Europe, different than in America, in America, we have this vast volunteer sort of network and board network and personal contributions is part of our zeitgeist to support your favorite nonprofit. Not so much in Europe. It's not a common practice. But in Europe, you have a lot more government support for arts and culture because they recognize truly how much money arts and culture makes for the rest of the economy, how much it generates incomes and spending, it's still a lot more advocacy we have to do in letting our decision makers know that, you know, there's a lot of money generated from arts and culture. I think last year was almost $900 billion to the United States GDP and in Massachusetts, $23.7 billion to the GDP. That's pretty significant. I know nationally, it's bigger than agriculture, education and construction. And similarly in the state. So in addition to the money that we make in personal taxes, you know, when you go to see a play, you might get your hair done, you might get your nails done, you might buy a new outfit. You're not going by yourself usually. So you might use public transportation or ride share or get in your car, you put gas in your car, then you have to park. And then you go to the restaurant beforehand and then you see the show and then you go buy concessions at the show. And then maybe after you go out to the bar, So all of that spending is happening around the consumption of art, which means that so many people are making money. There are so many communities where like they have a a hard time generating income. They put a artistic cultural sector in the middle of that community. All of a sudden, everyone is doing better. The restaurant, retail, all that happens. And most people don't think about that when they think about art. They just go, oh, that's leisure. That's something you do on the side. Oh, a lot of people make money from you going to see a play or to a museum. In my mind, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Your mind is blown. <laughs> my mind is blown because you are so right. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not that $30 ticket you bought. It's that $150 you spent elsewhere. Yeah, it is so true. Um, in 2019, you took on the role of artistic director of 
Watertown's new repertory theater. And I found a piece in the Boston Globe that you were profiled in. I just wanted to read this quickly because I had a question connected to it. You said theaters need to get to a place of equity, diversity, and inclusivity in a way that is more about social justice than about optics. At that time, what was the theater landscape like? The theater I went to run was predominantly white. It was almost an all-white staff, an all-white board, and an all-white patron base. One of the things I say to arts organizations all the time is that if you are predominantly white, you have to understand that it was designed to be that way. It didn't happen by accident. The business model was designed by white people for white people. And that's because there's a lack of perspective in the room when you're making decisions. And so it shouldn't be a surprise. And so if we want to become more diverse and inclusive, we have to redesign the business models. And so the theater I walked into was all white. And when they brought me in to diversify, that's when we started seeing more people of color engaging in the organizations because I wasn't just thinking about the shows I was producing because that's a lot of what organizations do. They produce their one black show a year or their one Asian show a year, as opposed to thinking about how their equity, diversity, and inclusion comes out in actions through every single aspect of their organization. So governance, what are your governing policies? What does your board look like? Do you have co-chairs that are BIPOC? Are you bringing in people of color and listening to what they say and incorporating it into your governance? What are you doing operationally? How are you making sure this is a place that is safe and values the lived experience and the contributions of people of color? So you're not just hiring people to be on your staff that are people of color, but then you're not just listening to what they say because we know, right? We're the experts on racism. And so I always tell people that if a person of color tells you something is racist, just believe them. Don't debate them. Just believe them. They're an expert. How are you incorporating into your operations? How are you more deeply incorporating it into your programming? And then how are you incorporating it into the work you're doing with your audiences, both in terms of marketing, but also like what behavior is acceptable when they come to your theaters or to your venues? So I think that kind of work needs to happen. And I think organizations are just starting to understand that it's not just about having the belief in racial equity. It is about how you are turning all that belief into action. I hear it's more than just filling a seat with a certain person. It's bringing their life experience, but you as a professional using your strategies to get them to listen and to see that there's more than one way to represent, I guess. There were a bunch of things we tried at the theater that we were still beta testing before I left. We had an audience agreement at the point of purchase. So before you could finish your ticket sale purchase, you had to look at our audience anti-racist agreements. You had to click a button and say, I accept it. That way you were walking into the theater that you know is anti-racist. And so we're not going to like turn around and shush the people behind us. That kind of thing. Like we're going to let people have the experience they want to have. Things like racism incident reports. You know, we do accident reports at our work. So if someone trips and falls, we fill out a piece of paper saying, oh my God, they fell, they hurt themselves. And here's the things we're going to do to fix it. So I designed a racism incident report. So if someone experiences racism, they could fill out this report and we'll figure out how to repair that incident. We talked about things like our diversity, equity, and inclusion committee on our board having veto power because that can be another performative action where you bring someone on the board 
and you make a committee, but they don't really have any power over the board's decisions. And as the board is trying to learn how to be anti-racist, they need someone to be accountable to. So giving that committee veto power would force their accountability, force them to think about the policies and decisions they're making because this other group might veto them. Those are kind of creative action, anti-racist actions that all these organizations need to think about so that their anti-racist work is deeply embedded and not just like, we're going to do discount tickets and we're going to do an outreach program because all those things are not going to fix your racism. For me, I feel like this conversation we have been having through, as you mentioned, the sacrifice of the murder of George Floyd. One of the things that I myself personally have been allowing myself to say is that racism is a form of trauma. And I never really thought of it that way. It's so funny, I do some significant racial equity training and I typically have white people do a different kind of learning because they need to learn what this thing is. And then for people of color, my training is about understanding what racial trauma is, understanding the ramifications of racial trauma so that we need to understand colorism, internalized racism. These are all tactics of oppression. The sad thing about oppression is oppression works best when the oppressor doesn't have to do anything more because the oppressed are oppressing themselves. But we also need to do some work on like radical joy and understanding joy, intersectionality, because people who are oppressed can be awfully oppressive to other oppressed people. Hmm. You know, one of the things I say to people is that I'm black and gay, in the gay community, I'm Black. In the Black community, I'm gay. And that's sad because we're all oppressed. So we should be uplifting each other, not tearing each other down. Right. I forgot to say thank you for sharing about imposter syndrome. I was having a conversation recently with my brother and sister-in-law, and we were talking about that in our professional lives and where we're all at right now. And knowing you can do the work, but still having the dialogue within of, oh, I'm not really doing it. Yeah, and I think that's probably a symptom of oppression as well, because we're all told that we're not good enough all of our lives. And this is where I think radical joy, understanding racial trauma can support those kinds of things. Because if you really are really intensely working on healing, you can tackle those kinds of, you know, demons in your head. What does RuPaul call them? The um, saboteur, the inner saboteur? You can tackle those inner saboteurs when you have a strong self-care practice. You know, it pops up for me, like just before popping onto this, there's a little demon that's going, oh my God, you're going to say something dumb. But because I have a pretty good self-care practice, I can pull myself back in the present and stay here with you right now in this moment. Again, thank you for that, because it just reminds me that we're all human. <laughs> we're all human, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. With your experience and influence in the arts, how do you feel it influences what you'll see when you visit other places in other states or other cities or even other countries? Well, I would say I'm incredibly impressed with the creative sector here in Massachusetts. I think it's, it's vast, it's eclectic, it is diverse. I think the state has some of the firsts and onlys and longest running and historic and largest. And it's pretty darn impressive. And so I like to brag on that when I go to other states because we got some good shit up here. <laughs> I try to also meet organizations where they are and not have an expectation because you have to think about 
the resources some organizations have and the resources they don't and the people that are in those positions that are running those organizations, what kind of resources do they have? So I don't think about quality. You know, my job is not to fund the best of the sector. We're here to fund the sector. And so a lot of the work we're doing right now to revise our grant programs is to make sure we're not having our own biases about what we like as people. It's really about that organization's value to the public or their community engagement or their artistic vibrancy versus what we think is best. And best and quality and excellence are all, for the most part, filtered through a white dominant culture, a white dominant European culture. So oftentimes we think about dance. When I go into rooms, I'll tell people to close their eyes and think about dance or music or art. And then I'll ask people, how many of you thought about salsa? How many of you thought about graffiti? How many of you thought about African dance? And very few hands will go up because we are so biased towards white dominant art. And so when we use those words to qualify who gets funding, who doesn't get funding, it can be a little bit dangerous. It can be othering. And then we'll see years and years and years of historically underfunded organizations continuing to get underfunding. So when I go visit others, I think about meeting them where they are. And I like to inquire about the work that they're doing and the effect they're having on their community rather than quality. So it's like helping to make what is legitimate. Well, I mean, it's really more about what can I do to help you more, even given the resources that I have. Annually, I have about $35 million I give out. So I can't give you more all the time. But if I can make introductions, if I can tell you about some of the experiences I've had in my life or some ways of re-looking at the business model or changing this, then that's a good thing. Anything to help you have a deeper impact or help you execute what you're trying to execute in a deeper way, that's where I can help. Okay. As a professional, how much of your personal experiences, either as being Black or being gay, do you allow yourself to pull into the conversation? I try my best to show up authentically as I am always. I spent way too many years in an authentic place and I don't like that. So now I'm very conscious of not code switching when I show up in different rooms. You know, I practiced doing that for what, 40 years. So I still have to work very hard to be who I am. But I will say in my day-to-day work, it shows up every single day. Inequities is always at the tip of my tongue making sure that we bring it to the forefront and dismantle it. Every room I walk in, I'm black and gay. And so (laughs) I can't not be black and gay. I'm still a practicing artist. I still write plays. And even if I'm writing play about ducklings, which is a play I'm working on right now, Mm -hmm. there's still me in the story. What's been your most recent production of your own work? So I'm adapting Make Way for Ducklings as a pretty popular children's book that's been around, I want to say, since 1938. Oddly enough, it's a Boston-centric story, and some of you probably may recognize that title. So that had a premiere last spring, and I just finished a draft of an adaptation of the Monster Mash song. Okay. You remember that song, that novel, they did the mash, he did the monster Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got the rights to that song and the estate of songs that that composer wrote. And there is a whole musical inspired by that. But all the main characters are like bits and pieces of me. I see. Yeah. 
Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fun. I uh, definitely have been promised that I'll come back more often than I have because I've never been to Massachusetts or to Boston. It's a neat state. There's so much of an effort to maintain a lot of the history so you can kind of see a lot of the nation's sort of first stuff here, which is really very cool. For my job, I have to drive around the state, as I mentioned, go to places like the Vineyard and Nantucket, but also like Falls River and Lawrence and Amherst, and just see uh, so many historical sites, so many places where some of our country's leading poets or playwrights or artists started. W.E.B. Du Bois grew up in Massachusetts. It's a great state, so it's worth a good long visit. Save my money and travel locally for history. <laughs> Here you go. I agree. Yeah, or domestically, yeah. Throughout your career, you've made it one of your missions to make sure that our landscape artistically is more diverse. With movies like Moonlight and last year came out B-Boy Blues, James Hardy's book that was made into a film. Do you see that coming into the theater world, more content for specifically Black LGBTQ plus protagonists? A lot of new plays. I was watching the Tonys the other day and Ariana DuBose, the host, said there were seven plays on Broadway written by Black playwrights. Many of them had gay storylines. That's the first. In the many years of this country and the many years of Broadway, that's a first. That's huge. You know, what's interesting to me is that diversity is good for business. And I think about the arts and culture sector. One of the things that makes me Black is that arts and culture is inherent in my ethnicity and my race, right? Like if you ask me about the things that makes me black, I'll talk about the dance and the music and the adornment and the food and the fashion. That's all parts of arts and culture. Like organizations that if you want audiences, you have built in people that love arts and culture. BIPOC people, it's inherent in who they are. There are some Native American communities don't even have a word for art because they don't think about it as separate from life. Like their fashion and their pottery is all part of living, but it's also artistic. So I tell organizations, if you want to expand your audiences, it's people of color. That's where you're going to get the largest expanse. So in that way, being diverse and equitable and inclusive is good for business. You just can't do it in a fake way. You can't like not do it in a deeply intentional way where you're trying to just get more transactions and more ticket sales. You have to do it because you really value the stories and the perspective and the desires of people of color. And that's where the mistakes are made. And so I think we're going to continue to see more stories about people of color. I think certainly the success of People like Lin-Manuel Miranda and the movies you mentioned, all that stuff is helping us to see that, oh my gosh, we've been missing out on these fantastic stories that people tell. I do think we have to be careful because the go-to is to do stories about our trauma. And I think we got to move past that because I don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> I just don't want to see it anymore. I don't need to see another 12 years a slave because it's re-triggering and it's painful. I have other stories to tell. And granted, I think those stories have to be told. My grandmother used to say, how are you gonna know where you're going if you don't know where you've been? And her sort of warning, her cautionary tale is that we need to know these stories because we don't wanna make the same mistakes from the past. But I don't think she's talking to us because we're not the ones continuing to make the mistake, right? She's talking to the white people that keep making the mistakes. 
So when I see people producing these stories about oppressed people's trauma, it's not about the oppressed person. It's not telling their stories, telling the stories of their trauma. And I think we are more than our trauma. And so I want to see us do shows about our joy and the contributions we've made to this nation, to this country, to the zeitgeist of the world that we live in. And I think when we do that, we'll see a lot more people coming together as opposed to separate. I won't say anything more on that other than I agree. <laughs> when you're not making the world a better place through what you do, through culture and arts, um, what do you do to wind down or to kind of enjoy life apart from that? Yeah, I have a really good self-care practice. And this started sort of in my early 40s where I needed to make a change in my life. And I thought, I got to figure out why I was okay with these unhealthy things in my life. So let me just sort of go deep with the self-care. And so I spent about six months to a year sort of healing physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, nutritionally, creatively, culturally, racially, financially. And I really dove deep on that. And so I came out of that just pretty much healed and also recognizing where I have places to continue healing. And so I totally enjoy the outdoors. I enjoy quiet time. I enjoy my gratitude practice. I enjoy the gym and spin class and yoga. I need to get back to it, but I really enjoy going on sort of healing retreats, weekend healing retreats where I'm just doing mindfulness and yoga for a weekend. Mm -hmm. But all of that has pulled me to a sort of higher plane of life. The benefit is that, you know, I turned 50 this summer, which is exciting. And I have no physical ailments. Most people wouldn't say that I look 50. I don't feel 50. I feel younger than I did 10, 15 years ago. But the other benefit of it is that I have such a great gratitude for all the great things that I have, that when bad things happen, it doesn't affect me as much. It happens, I deal with it, and then I move on. I don't belabor it. And so I enjoy that. I think the thing I'll enjoy the most is getting together with people and being around other people. Because I think when I was not as healthy, I isolated myself. I went to work. I threw myself into work. I spent 60 hours a week working. But when I came home, isolation, isolation, isolation. And so now just getting together with people and crowds of people or just walking with one other person, it's just so joyful. Emotionally, spiritually, physically be the best and the healthiest you can be. Yeah, without the pressure of perfectionism, because I don't think perfectionism is a healthy thing. I think I strive for excellence. I don't go for perfection because who needs that stress? Well, I'll say uh, welcome to the fifth floor <laughs> as a friend said to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of touching on briefly before we close out on theater, do you think you have to be well-versed in theater to enjoy it? Oh, no. And I think the best theater speaks to the universality of the human experience. So I hope that when people go to theater, they find themselves somewhere in the play. I don't think you need to be well-versed. And I think that the tropes that we had of who is a theater goer and what is theater and how you have to act in the theater are starting to die away. Anyone can come in no matter where you are and find a way to enjoy that. And I still think there's some more work to do in how we break down the wall between the artists and the audiences, but also the gate that's up in front of the theater. You know, one of the things I've been reminded of recently is that some of us are gatekeepers. 
But what I try to encourage people to do is to hold the gate open, not just open the gate, but hold it open so that you're really inviting people in. I think theater is working really hard to do that. So I don't think you have to be well-versed in theater. Some of it may be hard in the beginning, like going to Shakespeare. If you haven't studied Shakespeare, it's hard to zero in on that language. And so that might be hard to get. What I also find is when I take people to see Shakespeare that haven't ever really experienced Shakespeare, in about the second or third scene, their ear starts getting attuned to the words. And musical theater, I think, is another theater form that can be hard to take if you don't buy the convention that people are going to talk. And then when they get to the height of their emotion, they're going to break out in song because that's the only way to express how they're feeling. And then sometimes that song gets to a fevered pitch that the only thing you can do is dance it out. And so if you don't buy that convention, musical theater can be off-putting because why the hell are they singing, you know? But if you buy it, then you can enjoy it. I don't dislike theater, but the way you described it helps me because I think of from an emotional standpoint, sometimes I need to listen to music to process or to dance. So yeah, I never thought of it that way. I think that's the great thing about artists and art. And I think it all is inherently a social justice tool because artists, again, they're incredible imaginative brains, their ability to like help us see the things that we can't see. That's why it's so important because I can develop a sense of empathy about someone else's experience because I'm seeing a play about them or I'm looking at a painting about them. So much of what I know about the world is because of what I learned doing theater and how this culture embraces this idea or how this person from this race is experiencing this thing. Such a valuable tool for developing empathy and for helping us to see other people's points of view. Same thing with movies. When I see a movie about someone I don't know or something I don't have any experience with, I usually find a way to connect with those people, even if the experience is different, and then I can develop an empathy for them. Keeping the channels open. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, as a parent, how have you been able to infuse this love of art and culture into, I think, your son's life? Well, he's 21 now, so uh, I'm mourning his childhood being gone. He just turned 21 a couple of weeks ago. I mean, to be frank, he didn't have a choice. He went to the arts and theater and whatever we took him to because he was a kid. And so in his teenage years, he started rebelling because it was boring. But I had a rule with him that if I worked directly on the show, you had to see it. If I was just kind of a producer on the show, you didn't have to see it. But if I wrote it or directed it or choreographed it, you had to see it. So we negotiated that. But I think, I mean, now when we go see stuff, he loves going to see it. It doesn't have to just be theater. It can be anything. He's got such incredible intuition about what he's seeing. He can speak about it in a very sort of intellectual way, but also in an emotional way and what he connected to and what he didn't connect to. I think that whenever he has children and he's got to wait for at least 15 years, before, <laughs> I do not want to be a grandpa before I'm 60. Um, but I think that he's going to expose them to it. I also think that he's going to be like a great board member on someone's artistic board. Um, so I'm excited about that. And, and my son was adopted from Vietnam. So we are of two different cultures and races. And so the arts are one of the ways that we were able to connect because we were very intentional about keeping him connected to his culture. 
we celebrated all the Vietnamese holidays and we found friends that were Vietnamese. We enjoyed the food and the customs and the traditions and the lion dancing and the music. And so my appreciation of that culture is it's because of him, which again, I think is one of the reasons why arts is so important to the world. And the more we can celebrate the contributions of culture and the joy of culture, the more we'll really appreciate other people that fear of the unknown, not understanding what and who someone is because they're different than me, often can go negative, right? As opposed to positive. And I think the arts can help us get to the positive. So utilizing your love of art and your professional life in the arts in real time in your own life. Yeah, I practice what I preach. Well, I want to thank you so much again for joining this platform, for uh, joining our Black Gay Diaspora podcast and just enlightening me. And again, the last thing when you talked about musical theater, I never would say I hated it. I just would say, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. Thank you for bringing voice and presence to Black people, to gay people, and the whole diaspora in which we exist in. Mm -hmm. It's so important to everything that we just said about exposing people to all the aspects of who we are, because we're people like everyone else. And so thank you for doing this. Of course, of course. So that we can continue to find out what you're doing. Where can we find you online? My Instagram account is at Michael James Bobbitt. Um, you can also find me on Facebook or LinkedIn. And then Mass Cultural Council is at Mass Cultural. We also have Twitter and IG and LinkedIn. And especially if you're in Massachusetts and you aren't getting supported by Mass Cultural Council, we want to hear from you. But all around the world, if anyone wants to be in touch, I would love to hear from everyone. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. <laughs>